On today's episode, I am joined by Peter Schwartz. Peter is the Senior Vice President of Strategic Planning here at Salesforce, and he comes to us as an internationally renowned futurist and business strategist. He specializes in things like scenario planning and working with corporations, governments, and other institutions to create alternative perspectives of the future and develop robust strategies for our changing and rather uncertain world. Some real big picture visionary work coming at you today. He brings the specialty to life here at Salesforce by managing the organization's ongoing strategic conversation. For example, he leads the Salesforce Futures Lab, a collaboration between our company's best and brightest strategic thinkers and our most advanced customers, work that tends to generate provocative ideas on the future of business. Prior to joining Salesforce, Peter was co-founder and chairman of Global Business Network. He is the author of several books and writings. His first, The Art of the Long View, is considered a seminal publication on scenario planning. He's also served as a script consultant on the films The Minority Report, Deep Impact, Sneakers, and War Games. And as of today, he is my podcast guest. I got a chance to hear him present on the future of technology and the impact that that will have on public sector organizations in a meeting with BART, the Bay Area's version of the subway system, who you'll hear more about and more from in these coming episodes. And it was fascinating. So I am bringing that presentation to you all today. Enjoy. Our digital nation is brought to you by the FedRAMP approved Salesforce Government Cloud. Give leadership, management, and employees the mobile, self-service, analytical tools they need to connect data, process, and people. Create a digital platform that puts the customer at the heart of the mission. Almost 20 years ago, Steven Spielberg asked me to help him write a script for a new film that he was about to make called Minority Report. Really? Yes. And Steven then said, look, I want to make a very realistic view of the future. And so I brought together a team of about 15 people working with Stephen, the art director, the script writers, and so on, to create all the technology that you saw on screen in that film. Tom Cruise controlling computers with gestures, walking into a shopping mall and having the ads recognize him, walking into the gap and have it recognize him, newspapers that changed headlines in real time, electronic newspapers. It was used, not facial recognition, but retinal scans, so on. I say all that because essentially everything that we put on screen now, almost 20 years, we wrote it in 99, it came out in 2002, is now possible. And one of the best examples is right here in San Francisco, where a market just opened about two months ago called Standard Market. Okay. And Standard Market, if you are a known customer to them, if you sign up as a customer, you walk in and facial recognition detects who you are. You walk up to the shelves and you pick out whatever you want. Sensors detect what you bought. And you walk out and it knows you did it. Zero friction, zero transaction time. It's absolutely zero clicks. And it's the store that knows you and therefore trusts you to do whatever you want. You have a relationship to the store. Mm -hmm. The human beings who are there no longer carry out trivial tasks like checkout. They're there to help answer questions, interact with customers. Oh, you know, you want to make a pasta? Let me recommend this sauce to you and so on. So their job is to create a better experience for the customer, not to handle adding up numbers at the checkout stand with an adding machine. Not the clerical work that surrounds. Okay. So it's a very different kind of customer experience, right? It is the blending of the physical and the digital. And it really answers the question, what happens when your retail environment knows you? And I think 
we're headed toward that world where the world around us will know us. And that's, I think, the, the really big leap. And that's what we showed in Minority Report, and we can now do that. So the interesting question is what lies beyond the <laughs> The framework we use for thinking about this begins with the key technological changes okay. that are operate through big business platforms like Amazon is the most obvious <laughs> example. And that, in turn, creates new experiences for customers. Okay. So, I mean, the most extreme case was it began one click. Right. Yeah. 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 One click changed everything. Right. Yeah. You didn't have to do anything but click, and it was yours. Right. <laughs> and that already began to awaken a whole revolution. People said, "Gee, transaction costs could begin to disappear. Friction could begin to disappear out of every transaction." And so they set in motion a revolution in customer experience with one click. So now we're headed towards zero clicks, just as I mentioned. Yeah. So you know, you think about technology, the business platform of Amazon leading to a radically different customer experience. And that's kind of how we think about it. So very much that foundation of everything that is to come. Yeah. I know this may seem a bit far out there, but more and more government is recognizing these very commercially oriented user experiences. Just like smartphones and on-demand services reset user expectations across all industries not too long ago, I'm including government in this. I mean, think about the number of times you've heard your constituents ask for an app, for example. Connected devices and their ability to blend the physical and digital worlds will impact what people deem to be worthwhile and what people deem to be relevant. Especially as the fourth industrial revolution, a concept I'm hoping you're becoming more familiar with if you've been listening to this season, continues to pick up speed. The idea of the fourth industrial revolution is something that uh, was born out of the World Economic Forum, where Salesforce is a very active participant and Mark is on the board. And not surprisingly, a lot of our customers are too, and a lot of the companies <laughs> we deal with are members of the World Economic Forum. So this is a kind of perspective that is spreading among a lot of global companies, right? So okay. it is not unique to Salesforce. That having been said, what we mean by that is something that's pretty obvious. First of all, I mean, We've been through four revolutions. The first was the steam revolution. The second was the electrical revolution. The third was computing. And the fourth now is intelligence. Okay. And it's artificial intelligence everywhere. And part of what makes this really significant and why people are treating it as highly consequential is steam took about a century to deploy. <laughs> right? Electricity took almost a century. Computing took a half a century. But AI is happening in like five years' time. And so it's highly disruptive. It's making a big difference in a very short period of time. And that's why the impact is so great. And why it is so revolutionary. The other dimension of its revolutionary nature is it's performing cognitive functions like language translation, like facial recognition, and so on. Judgment recognition, driving cars. <laughs> so this is a really qualitatively different kind of revolution, both in its speed and its particular nature. The Internet of Things. Mm. i.e. technology embedded in appliances, for example. Or uh, train cars. Or, or, or train <laughs> cars, or your automobile, and so on. So what we're bringing, everything is coming to life. Literally, all the artifacts around us are beginning to have little bits of embedded intelligence, communications, and sensors. So what does this all mean for government? Participation. Think about the level of participation that would be encouraged by having notifications pushed to public transit riders, voters, permit seekers. What if a home assistant device could connect to the network at the nearest station, or even the bus itself, and 
call out bus departure times as you're getting ready to leave the house in the morning? How much easier would it be for you to use that transit system? What if local voting stations could text residents with how far the walk is from the aforementioned bus stop to the voting center? Include schedules and where to confirm that you are indeed registered to vote. Now, some of the benefits of this participation-heavy utopia, if you will, are kind of obvious. It tends to correlate with improved user experiences, keeping everyone from the tweeting transit writer to the employees that have to respond to their comments happy. Participation also gets back to the root, the heart of government, of course, but there's more to it than that. When we talk about AI, we're really talking about machine learning. That is taking an enormous amount of data, feeding it to an algorithm, and it carries out one useful function, language translation, spatial recognition, speech recognition, book recommendation. And your book recommendation engine will not drive your car, will not translate language. It is not a general purpose intelligence. Highly specific, very limited, and therefore has no likelihood of being a runaway intelligence (laughs) or anything that anybody's going to get scared about. That's my point is. These are very useful and highly limited cognitive functions. All right. That's what we mean by AI. This is a game that we're now talking about that is, it really involves four companies, mainly Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. In the world of commerce, Microsoft is an important player. Mm-hmm. But in the world of the home and day-to-day life, they're not yet a player to that. That probably won't be. But you start thinking about Google Assistant is already becoming a very big deal. Siri is already a big deal. Alexa is a very big deal. Facebook is trying to punch into it as well. And the reason that all of these guys are so significant is they've got data. They're the big data players, right? They all have vast amounts of data. And that's what makes them significant. They can use all of that data to do better speech, better analysis, better recommendations, and so on. At the extreme, you want to think about Amazon as the Saudi Arabia data. (laughs) Well, data is the new oil, right? And the Saudi, Amazon, Google, Russia, right? They're the other big oil producer. So these guys have an enormous amount of data. That's their basis for their success. But in my humble opinion, where government has an advantage on that front, is government has a ton of data because they're required to collect it. They're required to report on it in many cases. When I first took this job, I was surprised how easy it was to get stats and figures on various mission services because it's public knowledge. So how do you think that data plays into government specifically, that currency or that oil kind of perspective? Well, the government is, as you rightly say, one of the great data collectors Yeah. and also publishes a lot of data. I'm the kind of guy who used to read the government statistical abstract. <laughs> and I'm serious. I loved it. You know, I learned a lot. I'd, you know, I'd look at employment and housing and economic statistics and demographics in there and so on. I learned a lot. The issue is this. The data in government tends to be in silos and is not analyzed and framed in a way that makes it useful to actually be into integrate into comprehensive solutions. And so that's one of the big challenges. And let me say that's not unique to government. That is also true in the world of business. Companies face the same challenge, i.e. the silos that data in different parts of the company that don't allow you to integrate. Groups of companies working together to provide services, for example, mm-hmm. ecosystems where the data should integrate and they don't, they don't move easily between them and so on. So you want to I mean, just think about automotive in government, DMV. Well, you'd like to have it actually connected in some ways to 
land use data, you'd like to see it connected to tax data. You know, we have a problem. Just take a very real example. As our cars become more efficient, as we move toward electric cars, the gasoline tax is doing a poor and poor job of paying for our roads. So we would like to have a mileage tax, right? Much better have people pay by the mile. Mm -hmm. But that means collecting the data of how far they're driving. Right now, nobody collects that data. No. Right? Yeah. How do you do that? I don't even know how. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually not that hard. It would be very easy. And some countries already do that, the tax on the basis of mileage. Now, that requires integration between the tax authorities, between the DFV, between the IT organization of the state that mm -hmm. actually has to do this and so on, mm -hmm. to really radically reinvent taxation for the roads and for vehicles. That's the kind of thing that becomes increasingly possible, but nobody's really tackling it because of the fragmentation within the system. So we still have toll roads toll and roads, bridge right. tolls and things like that. Exactly. <laughs> the thing about data, whether it's reinforcing historical information or finding a way to unify it all on a single unsiloed platform, is that it takes time. It takes time to build up data sets. It takes time to play with a system and confirm that you're asking the right questions, looking for the right insights, and finding the things that are significant. Those that don't start building data sets today risk their ability to keep pace tomorrow as more and more organizations figure this out. If you are a government official and you're looking to take advantage of these new platforms, these new eras, these new experiences, what are some of the ways that you would recommend they start taking, whether it's baby steps or giant leaps? Look, this is a time for experimentation. We're in the early days of this, right? A way to think about it is I compare today's smartphone to the BlackBerry, right? <laughs> we all can remember what the BlackBerry was like. It was a pretty primitive smartphone, right? And it kind of gave you a hint of what was going to happen when you had a really good screen, really great keyboard, lots of data, apps, etc. So today's voice technology and today's digital assistants like Alexa and Siri, et cetera, is like the BlackBerry. Okay. Right? But we can see what's going to happen when it gets much more powerful, when we have that capability around for everybody. So we're moving from this world of Amazon Alexa to a world where everyone will have a digital personal assistant. And that digital personal assistant will want to interact with public services. So if I have a tax inquiry, I'll say to my digital assistant, Look, I need to speak to the tax department and find out about X, Y, or Z. My digital assistant will reach out to the IRS or the state tax authorities and say, my man, my woman, my person, I guess my person, uh, my human, doesn't know whether they have to pay tax on a parcel that they have bought in March after the tax year or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. What should I tell them? Now, what that means is that at the other side, at the IRS side, there has to be a a, either a human who knows how to listen to that or interact with it, but mm -hmm. better yet, another digital assistant that through open APIs can interact with it and make that inquiry seamless and instantaneous. And so we're moving into this world where a lot of the interactions of public services, inquiries, and engagement will happen in the background, just as you can be sure that CEOs and rock stars don't get on the phone to the IRS. They, they ask their people. They do have do a person. It, yeah, my person will call you, right? My assistant. Well, that's the situation that everybody's going to be in. 
So the public services five years from now will have to begin to accommodate a world where the engagement will be in a digital form and they will need to engage conversely in a digital form. So this is the moment to begin to experiment with that. Now, I will say the two places in the world that are moving the most, actually three, that are moving aggressively. State of Colorado, here in the United States. Yeah, they have like 90-something apps built on our platform exactly. alone. And- the government of New South Wales and the government of Singapore. All three of those are places which are moving very aggressively in integrating digital capabilities into the infrastructure of public services. So it's small apps or some of those small baby steps like you're talking about so that you not only, and this is a question, so you not only get your employees used to working on those things, get your processes updated to work on those sorts of platforms, but you start getting those little puzzle pieces together so that you are ahead of the game when it comes time to piece them into one big picture. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and you think about BARC, we talked about that, right? Yeah. There's no reason why BARC shouldn't use facial recognition, right? And yeah. Then, you know, get rid of the tickets altogether, right? BARC has a big problem with something like 100,000 people who have jumped the barriers, right? And yeah. I, I mean, I see it all the time. Well, facial recognition, it'll pay. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, right? no, but it, uh, and yeah. it eliminates that whole problem of how do you even measure, how do you estimate, how do you get... Exactly, right? There's no saying, you know, why do bridge holes exist? To back up behind the, you know, at the Bay Bridge every day. No. There are so many things where public services using new technology can take the friction out of it. And I think that's what's about to happen. So, and to get ready for that day when facial recognition is here and we are in this just super future environment. Yeah. Well, it is here. This is not 20 years from now. This is the next five years. That's what I'm saying. It is here. True to your point. We are in the minority report era. Yeah. (laughs) we're, We're there. The really big thing here is learning adaptation or experimentation. That this is a time when people really want to start playing with the technology, experimenting with it. Get it at home. Get yourself an Amazon Alexa. Get yourself a Google Home. I don't care what it is. And start playing with it. It's early days. It's like playing with your BlackBerry. Say, you know, what happens when this thing really matures? And I think that is the question that I think a lot of civil servants and people who develop capabilities in the public sector want to think about. What happens when everybody has a super Siri and a super Alexa and so on? And everybody has the capabilities that only rock stars and CEOs have today. What are companies fearing most? And then how does that relate back to public sector? Well, first of all, the fear has changed. The fear <laughs> used to be getting Ubered. And that meant yes. having your business model blown up, right? The transportation industry has been Ubered. Yes. Right? We're not even talking about self-driving airplanes, right? We have no. self-driving cars, self-driving trucks. Oh, yeah, Uber's working on a, you know, an air taxi, right? Mm-hmm. Picks you up at mm-hmm. home and flies you around. Now that has changed. It's Amazon. Amazon has become such an immense commercial enterprise that everyone fears that it's coming into their business and changing both the economics and standards of experience, right? Mm -hmm. So they started out selling books, then they started selling almost everything else, then they bought supermarkets, whole earth, now they're actually opening markets of their own, they're opening bookstores of their own, they've got the Amazon Go store, which is basically friction-free transactions, all you do is show your phone when you walk through, and and they just opened one here in San Francisco. So Amazon, they've announced they're going into healthcare. So there's almost nothing that they're not interested in. And if you think about this, in the IT industry, if you were here in the 1960s and 70s, you did not compete with IBM, who was by far the biggest player in those days. There was nobody who made mainframes at the scale and volume that IBM did. So you didn't compete with IBM. You lived in the world that IBM created. 
You built peripherals for IBM. You wrote software for IBM. You did services for IBM, but you didn't compete with IBM. Amazon is the new operating system of commerce in the West. Alibaba is in the East. Yeah. But what we're going to see is that they're going to play in more and more arenas. They're going to be more and more consequential. And they're also setting the standard for what constitutes engagement with their customers, both standards of privacy, standards of access, standards of transactions, all of those kinds of sure, things. Sure, speed of service delivery. Exactly, all that. One day we ordered, just as a test here in San Francisco in our headquarters, we ordered a Fitbit that said, how fast can you get it here? 47 minutes. <laughs> Right? That's hard to beat. <laughs> that is very hard to beat. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure I can get myself across the city in 47 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> wow. So you put a quote into one of the slides in the original presentation here. The death of brands is here and it has a voice, Alexa, by the great Professor Scott Galloway. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, look, it's just, this is actually a really big deal in the world of commerce. Now, it may also be a big deal in the world of politics of who gets credit for what. <laughs> but the point is that if you just go on Alexa and say, look, I want to order some batteries, mm -hmm. right? What you're going to get is generic Amazon batteries. If you order detergent, you're going to get generic Amazon detergent, right? Because they have their own house brand. If you're Procter mm. & Gamble, that makes you crazy because, of course, Procter & Gamble's real asset is brands, right? Yeah. They built the company on Tide, right? Mm -hmm. People don't care whether they get Tide or they get Amazon white box with a smile on it. They right? now care about how easy it is to get whichever one is the yeah. path of least resistance. Alexa, <laughs> uh, get me a box of detergent every six weeks, please. I don't want to think about it anymore. And that's it. I don't want to think about it anymore. It's they've taken the thought process out. You don't have to think about it. Yeah. Uh, what kind of detergent do I need? I don't care. You know, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of dishwashing soap do I have? Do I really care? Alexa, get me some dishwashing soap. Oh, about every four weeks, deliver a package. And so if you're now built your business on brands and unique brand value, in this world where you're now going through these digital assistants to get to the marketplace where it's Amazon or similar players, then you've got a real problem. How do you punch through to get your brand in front of the consumer? And I think that is also, look, we have that in public services. Yeah. You know, how do you get the attention of the consumer in a very, if the consumer says, I want to get my driver's license renewed, Alexa, can you help me? Shouldn't it be able to engage with the DMV and make it friction free? Everybody hates the DMV, <laughs> right? The go-to example, yes. Well, but it's true, <laughs> right? We have to do it. We have to get our licenses renewed. We have to do all and it's a pain in the butt. It always takes four hours minimum. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Even if you have an appointment, it takes four hours. So this should be absolutely, yeah, I mean, yeah if, at my age, they should have the right to check my eyes and test whether I can still walk straight and so on. Well, no, that's reasonable. But if you're 35 and you've had no violations, it should be like that, right? You should, mm -hmm. Alexa, renew my license. And it should be, your license should be renewed. That's all that should happen. So you think about many examples like that of interaction with services, of public services. So the question is, will government services put themselves in a position to be able to interact with those kinds of capabilities? Thank you for tuning in to Our Digital Nation. To learn more about the trends and technology behind the discussion, visit us at salesforce.com forward slash industries forward slash government or follow us on Twitter at salesforcegov.com.